Fun, unique podcast taking you behind the badge. Unbelievable stories exploring the day in the life of a first responder. 911 is made possible by Carlos Bail Bonding and Eric Buchanan and Associates, fighting for those that have been denied disability, life, long term care, and health benefits nationwide. Now, here's your host, DeMarlin Dean. Welcome to 911. Thank you so much for joining us today. And hey, you know what? I know I sound like a broken record when I say we have a great show, but we have a great show today, but it's a little different than what you're used to. I know you're used to us talking to the first responders, but today we're going to talk to someone who was first responded to. And what I mean by that is I have my guest today is Danny Collins, and this dude was on track to be a major league baseball player, got signed by the Braves back in the day, and I'm just going to say he threw it all away, but I'm going to let you or let him tell you his story by himself or for himself, let him speak for himself. And we're going to dig into his experience with police. And we're actually going to hear about some of the crazy stuff that happens in prison. So I guess you'll know I've given that much away that, you know, his path took him through prison. But Danny, how in the world are you doing today? Doing fantastic. I'm glad you have me here. Hey, I'm glad to have you here. And I'll just go ahead and tell everyone, if you want to follow this guy on TikTok, this is where I found him. And he was actually sharing some really cool knowledge on TikTok uh, about our, our criminal justice system. And he's speaking from a place of experience because he certainly was involved in it. But Danny, I'm just going to turn it over to you and let you tell us your story because you were on track, headed to the major leagues and you got derailed a bit. So tell us about that. Yeah, most people find it hard to believe that, you know, I went from playing professional baseball to being in a prison, you know. Um, My childhood dreams were to grow up and play professional baseball for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, My mom left when I was a kid, when I was a baby, and I had some real abandonment issues. So I told my Little League coach once I found out that, you know, my stepmom wasn't my real mom, that one day I'm going to grow up and play baseball for the Atlanta Braves, so maybe my mom would want me. And uh That actually came true. And, you know, I got to that level of playing ball. I was projected to be a number three, number four starter in the big leagues. Um, Ended up getting a six-figure signing bonus at the age of 19. Um, Out of my sophomore year in college, I was uh, signed to go to FIU down in Miami. And uh, I elected to go pro instead. And um, But I realized that once I got there, like, I still didn't have that fulfillment. So, like, this was my childhood dream of playing professional baseball. But I was really motivated by hopefully having a relationship with my biological mother. And, you know, that didn't happen. But, you know, I was a young kid. I was 19. Um, like I said, I got a, a, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And to me at that time, it was a lot of money. I didn't grow up with a bunch of money. You know, I grew up in, in a working class family. And um, so when I got that money, I just kind of ran wild with it. You know, like I thought it would never end. And my perspective on life was just like live for the moment. I didn't really have any thought out plans of, you know, what I was going to do outside of baseball. There was really no plan B. And mm-hmm. um, so I got this money and I started drinking and partying. And, you know, one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I was addicted. And um, I didn't get released from baseball for a lack of talent or for an injury. You know, most people that end up, you know, ending their careers at that level, it's due to one of the two. It's either they're not good enough or they got injured. And um, 
at that level, everybody can play. So the difference between the people who actually make it to the big leagues and the difference between the people who don't are usually what are they doing off the field? And for me, that was, I was on the party scene, like our spring training with uh, the Braves was in Disney, uh, wide water sports were in Orlando. I was a Florida boy, so I was local. So when everybody would come to, to Orlando to spring training, like I was the party guy, like I was the ringleader of taking <laughs> the guys out. And um, I thought it was a good time. Like I, I really thought it was like innocuous fun. I, I didn't think that it was going to be um, what it ended up being. But um, in baseball, when you get to the minor leagues, the the team owns the rights to you. So you have to play by their rules. Um for minor leaguers, there's no players union. So like you had to have a short haircut, your shirt tucked in, you, you know, like it was, it was strict rules. But one of the things was if you were in their room, something that they paid for, you couldn't have any alcohol and you couldn't have any girls in the room and you had to be in by 11. But of course I never adhered to those rules. I was always out. I would get constantly get caught with different girls in the room and, um, I just didn't, I, I had no perception of, of the long game, you know, and um, ultimately I started getting fined. So like in high school, college ball, they, they don't fine you. They, they run you, you just run for the rest of practice. So there it's just a money thing, pay $50, pay a hundred dollars, whatever. So like, it didn't matter. I was like, here I am thinking that I'm going to be this multimillionaire. I got, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Look at me, got it all together. And you know, I'm gladly paying a hundred dollar fines for, for my bit of fun. So, um, long story short, I ended up getting released. Uh, we went out one night in Orlando. There was a couple new guys that signed. They were young. Um, they signed for a good amount of money more than I did. And, um, they were really drunk and we were out at a bar and we were leaving the bar and there was this Puerto Rican girl that was speaking Spanish and, one of the guys tried to hit on her and she wasn't having it. And so when we went to leave, when we went to leave, um, sorry, my phone, when we went to leave, the, the guy says to the girl, um, or says to the, the girl's talking to a, another guy in Spanish. And he says to the guy, he's like, one of the guys on my team was like, Oh, don't talk to her. She's a, you, you know, a derogatory term. And the guy looked at him and said, what'd you say about my sister? And wails him, like punches him, knocks him out. And next thing you know, people are screaming, people are running and here comes bicycle cops. So like I, I fade to the back. I'm like, okay, I cannot be in any more trouble. So I fade to the back. Um, I leave. Uh, uh, one of the guys ends up getting arrested. Another guy, I believe goes to the hospital. Anyways, we get to the field the next day and I get identified as the ringleader. So once the director of operations, minor league operations, who happened to be Dayton Moore at the time, he's the general manager of the Kansas City Royals right now. He got word that I was there. I was already known for being in trouble. So they suspended me indefinitely. And I went home. And uh, instead of releasing me, I was suspended indefinitely. When they do that, they still own the rights to you. You're not allowed to talk to any other team. You can't do anything. So I went home and I continued to party. And that's when, like, my interactions with the law started happening, you know. And at uh, this point, you still had what you thought was some money. Yeah, I yeah, I still had money. I had money to live off of. I wasn't really concerned about working at the time. And um, probably thought you'd be called back, you know, this yeah, is all over. 
yeah, this, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go back. I know I got the talent, you know, real arrogant, young, naive. Um, at that age, I thought I knew everything. And uh, apparently I knew nothing, you know. Um, but I started getting arrested. And it started out with, you know, simple disorderly intoxication, public intoxication. Um, but I would go to jail. Most of the time they would look at my backstory. Oh, you know, college graduate, went to college, played professional baseball, you know, I had my A degree at the time, but, um, you know, like, let's not ruin his career. Let's not give him these charges. And they would just send me, slap me on the wrist and send me back out, you know. But I, I wasn't getting help. I wasn't treating, like, the underlying issues, the problem. And the problem was me and, and the alcohol and the drugs and the addiction. And it progressively got worse. Um, by this time, baseball was, like, long gone. I wasn't even thinking about it anymore. Um, they... Finally, after I, I don't even know how long it was, maybe a year, maybe longer, they finally gave me my official release. So now I was free to do whatever I want. The Braves no longer owed the rights to me. But at this time, my agent wanted me to come work out. My agent was a, a guy by the name of Bill Rose. Uh, his partner was a guy by the name of Brian Doyle. He was the, I believe it was the 1975 World Series MVP with the Yankees. Um, my agent had like a, a partnership in the Yankees firm. So he was a pretty big guy, like with, with the Yankees organization. And, um, he kind of distanced himself from me because he saw that I wasn't serious. You know, he, he didn't have time for somebody that wasn't putting in the work. And, um, yeah, and like you said, I just want to interject here. Like you said, at this level, everybody can play. Yeah. So, you know, you have to, not only do you have to be able to play, but you have to, to maintain yourself off on and off the field or, or these guys are just, thank you very much. Let's on to the next one. Yeah. And it's a business. And that's something I realized with, with baseball, when you get to that level, it's, it's more about the money than sometimes the talent. Cause there can be a guy who signed for say a thousand dollar signing bonus and a guy that signed for a million dollar signing bonus. But if the guy that signed for a million dollar signing bonus is messing up and not producing, they're going to give him a few more chances just because that's an investment. So that's what they did with me initially. Cause they gave me a few hundred thousand dollars. Like, if I would have been a guy that just signed for $1,000, they would have cut me right away. But right. they gave me a few chances before they finally said, okay, you know, the the cons outweigh the pros here. And um, no that's pun what happened. Intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the ex-pro turn con. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and that's what happened. I ended up getting released. I, I partied. I drank. I drugged. Um, I, I thought it was harmless you know, and I started getting arrested. Um, the Braves also gave me $40,000 to go back to school. So that was part of my contract. So once I burnt up all this other money, because eventually it ran out, because that's what it's going to do, you know, like, right. I'm not working, I'm not doing anything. And one thing I can say about sports back then is that there wasn't any like really like financial advisors or structure in place to teach young athletes what to do with money. Like, Today, there's a lot more of that because they've realized that many of these young athletes get this money. They blow it on things that don't appreciate in value. They don't know how to invest. They don't know how to budget, manage money. That was me, you know? Right. You know, the, the crazy thing was that I ended up getting a financial education in prison, you know, of all places. But um, 2009, it was August of 2009, um, my wife now, I was living with her. She kicks me out. Um, she just had enough, you know, like there was only so much you can take of somebody destroying them lot, their life to like the point of death. And she, you know, had enough and was like, you know, you can't come, can't come back here. 
And I was working for a company out of Jacksonville at the time. I was a marketing director for a home inspection company. No, but let me rewind because I got the money for school. So I uh-huh. used that $40,000. I go to school. Um, I end up going to University of South Florida. And this yeah. is in 2006. I go to University of South Florida. Um, I blow that $40,000. Uh, and it's, it's crazy because I remember I ended up, I was living in a furnished apartment and I ended up selling the school's furniture, you know, the, or the apartment complex furniture that's tied with the school for drugs. Like that's how bad off I was. I wow. remember go- going to the computer lab and I had to write my dad, you know, cause my dad was like the, my biggest supporter, but he was also my biggest enabler. And I remember writing my dad and I was like, dad, if you just help me this one last time, I swear I'm going to, you know, it's the, the same song and dance that most addicts give. And, and a lot of times they're genuine. Like, you know, like I really wanted help, but I just didn't know how to get the help. And uh, I wrote my dad that, you know, if you just help me out this one last time, I promise I'm going to change. I sent him like this four page email from the computer lab at, at the school because I couldn't I didn't have a computer anymore because I had sold it. You know, like that's how bad my addiction got. And um, he wrote me back and I'll never forget it. I ended up getting it tattooed on me, but it said words are easy to say. Actions govern our lives. Life's a short trip to a small planet. Life everlasting is your choice. And um, wow. That those words had like a profound meaning on me. And I wish I, I, I could say that I got it then, but I didn't. And, you know, I, he, he came and got me like he always does. Um, tried to help me get back on my feet, but I would string some time together of getting my life together. And then it would, you know, take one drink and then I'm off to the races again. And um, so was your was your drug of choice alcohol primarily? Is that what you were addicted to? That's what it started with. But it okay. ended up being um cocaine, opiates, you know, it didn't matter. Like you name it, I was doing it. Like to me, it was about being on the scene, being, you know, the nightlife and, you know, everything that, that the lie that comes with it, you know, you you think it's going to be promising and something great, but you know, it's always empty, you know, at, at the end. And, you know, all the people that I partied with, with all this money, like none of them are here now. Like nobody's a part of my life now. And, and, that's the irony is because the people that I hurt the most are the ones that are still here, like my wife and my dad. And, um, but, um, so with my dad, I ended up, or after he helped me, I ended up meeting my wife now and we start dating. I'm working for a company out of Jacksonville. It's they, they sell home inspections. And, um, so I ended up becoming like a marketing rep slash director for this company selling home inspections. Well, they gave me a route in South Florida so the company's out of Jacksonville. I went up to Jacksonville for treatment and mm-hmm. I left treatment, went to a halfway house there, ended up working for this company. Well, they were like, we're going to send you from South Florida. We're going to send you back down there to drum up some business. So I come down to South Florida um, with my wife now um, and I'm doing well. You know, they give me a company truck, a laptop, a phone, like, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to, to hang on. But it's still a far cry from playing professional baseball, you know. Um, and that's really where my heart was, but I just didn't have the wherewithal to, to really get myself in order at the time. But so 2009 hits, it's August of 2009. I'm at the point where I like, I just want to commit suicide. Like my life is over. Like I've lost my baseball career. Like I felt like I didn't have the best childhood and, um, I just, you know, I can't get it together. So 2009, I'm in the company truck. My wife had kicked me out. I, everything I owns in the truck and, um, this guy that I was staying with that was also selling drugs, I ended up going to his house and, and robbing him. And 
when I did, his girlfriend called the cops. So when I was leaving the house, it was the middle of the night. I'm driving towards, I'm going to get back on the exit. My grand scheme was that um, I'm going to pick up some drugs and I'm going to get on the exit and I'm going to go back down south to where my girlfriend was just to get out of town. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was in Fort Pierce, Florida anyways. But um, so as I'm driving, I see a police car heading in my direction. I was going to turn right there, but I seen him turn left before me. So I kept going straight. When I seen him turn around in the middle of the road, I knew he was coming for me. It was just me right. and him on the road. Okay. So I made up my mind that he was going to have to kill me. Like, I'm not stopping. And um, I looked in the rearview mirror. He turns on the lights. I take off. Now, I'm in a Nissan Frontier. It's a little five-speed, four-banger. And I take off. And, of course, he chases me. We end up going down a whole bunch of different back roads um, in my hometown. A bunch of them ended up being like these dirt roads. It was near a huge canal. And um, anyway, so I come to a dead-end road in this chase. And this is after a few minutes of being chased. He gets out of the vehicle and has his gun drawn on me. So I look in the rear view, and I was like, I'm not giving up. So... I put the truck in first gear, I spin it around, and I take off. Miraculously, I didn't hit any cops, and that wasn't my intention. But in the back of my mind, like, part of me was like, I just wish they would just, you know, shoot me. Like, end it shoot now. You know, like, yeah. yeah, suicide by cop. Like, let's yep. just get this over with. And um, they didn't. And I ended up missing the cop. I don't know how many were there with them because it it just happened so fast, but I keep going. Well, of course, they get back in their cars. The chase pursues. I had turned my headlights off, and but every time I hit the brakes, they're on me. So now I'm not in my right mind. I've been up for a week at this point on drugs, like just completely like done. And I start fumbling around for the fuse box. Well, when I do, I... I'm looking down, fumbling around for the fuse box, and I look up, and the road ends. So I hit this mound. It's got the signs that are pointing each direction. You can either make a left or a right there. It's a hard right, hard left, you know? But don't go straight. Don't go straight. No. I end up going straight, obviously. I tried to turn the wheel, but it was too late. So my truck flies into the water. My head hits the windshield. I start sinking. Truck's filling in with water. I'm freaking out. I'm panicking. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm about to drown. So all that, I want to die, the natural preservation kicks in. And it's like now I'm fighting for my life, you know. And um, so much water's coming in the truck. I'm like, how am I going to get out of this truck? I can't get the door open. I can't get the windows open. And there's a hatch in the back of the truck, and it had a camper on it. And I don't know if I punched a glass or if it broke on impact, but I have this huge scar on my hand. I don't know if you can see it, but yeah, I see it. Yeah. Yeah. That scar ended up happening after the chase. So I go through this hatch. I don't know how I fit through it, but as I'm going through, I feel somebody pull me through. Well, when they pull me through, my only instinct is to get air. So as I'm going to get air, I swim up. My head hits the camper in the truck. Now I'm panicking. I even more, I swallowed a bunch of water. Um, but when a vehicle sinks, like it doesn't completely go under right away. So there was still like a little pocket of air, like in the camper. So I went up for air in, in that little pocket. And now I'm trying to push the hatch of the camper open, you know, 
and I can't get it open. Well, finally, like it pops open and I slide through it. Well, at the same time, I'm coming out of the truck. The truck's going completely under. But it wow. was the, the force was so strong that it was like a, a black hole, like a vacuum. Like it was sucking me down. It ripped my shorts off. It ripped my shoes off. Um, and I feel somebody pulling me up. Well, when I get pulled up, I start gasping for air. When I'm gasping for air, I look around in my mind. Like I'm panicking. I'm still running, though. Like, so I look at one canal bank and I see what I thought to be cop lights. I look at this and I, what I think to be cop lights. What I'm thinking is the Q beam is shining the water. You know, like I see this bright light shining the water, but I try to swim. Like I'm trying to run still. Like I'm a fugitive. And so I start swimming. And when I swim, the current is so strong. And I was like, I can't do this. I give up. I give up. Well, I swim to the shoreline. It was a steep, steep canal bank. It's a, it's Taylor Creek Canal in, in Fort Pierce, Florida. And it's, I mean, it's a huge canal that feeds into the river. And um, I, I swim to the shoreline. I climb up on the, on the bank and I black out. Well, when I wake up, it's the next day. And wow. nobody's around me. I'm covered in blood. I don't have any shorts on. I just got a pair of boxer briefs on. My legs sliced open. My face is sliced open. My hand, like, I'm just covered in blood from head to toe. And my shoe, and, it, like, the bottom of my foot, like, filleted open. Ew. And uh, I started screaming at the top of my lungs. And uh, I don't know how much time passed, but uh, an ambulance ends up, ends up pulling up as well as a cop car. And when they pull up, they get out of their vehicles and they go look at the water. Now, where I'm at is off to the side, and it's really high grass. So, like, I'm pretty hidden in there. But they hear me. They hear me screaming. So as they're walking over to me, like, I'm cussing them out. I'm like, you mother effers, pull me out of this truck. You left me here for dead. I can't believe you did that. And uh, they're like, we didn't pull you out of this truck. And I'm like, what do you mean you didn't pull me out of the truck? If, if you didn't pull me out of the truck, what brought you back to the spot? You know, like, and they said that they had got a phone call from the lady at the end of the road. Um, saying that there was a white male out here bleeding, half naked, screaming to death. And um, they said that they thought that I pulled a Houdini and disappeared. So, wow. Of course, they, they, they put me on a stretcher, load me up in the ambulance. The whole time they keep asking me who's driving. Now, me being green to the system at the time, I, I say I was driving. Who else do you think was driving? Like I, I was incriminating myself and not even knowing that I was incriminating myself, you know? So like, right. of course the investigation had already started at that point, but I, I don't know that, you know, like all I'm thinking about is I need to get to the hospital. I damn near lost my life and um, I need to get help. So um, they load me up into the ambulance. I go to the hospital. Um, my dad ends up meeting me at the hospital at this point, I'm not under arrest. So they're asking me a bunch of questions. Um, I get them on the phone with who my wife now, um, who she was the one that, you know, had broken up with me at the time because my addiction had gotten so bad that she was going to actually come up there to the hospital. Well, at that point is when they placed me under arrest. And, you know, they charged me with a burglary at the guy's house, you know, aggravated fleeing and looting, aggravated assault on an officer because they said, well, my vehicle was pointed in the, in the direction of the cop, that he was in fear of his life. It became a deadly missile, you know. Um, so all these things happen. I ended up getting arrested um, and I go to the county jail. I, I waited in the county jail. I don't know. I think like 14 months um, at this point, I'd never done any like real jail time. I'd never. 
um, been sentenced to anything. Um, most of the time, my sense were a day here, two days there. Well, this time I ended up getting five years in prison, followed by a year community control. So it was actually, I mean, the exact time was like, I don't know, like 56.2 months or something. It was whatever I scored out to, my lowest permissible sentence with the year community control. And um, and the judge, you know, he told me that he didn't want to do this, but somebody that's done this amount of stuff, like they need to see the inside of a prison is what he told me. And, yeah. um, and that's what happened. So like I went to prison. Um, the first time I went to prison, it wasn't that crazy. Uh, I kind of went in, got out. Like it, was, it just happened so fast. But then I came home. Let me and, hold on a second. Yeah. Just one second before we get too far. So I want to go back to the accident. Okay. Tell whoever that is in the background. Keep it down. We're doing a podcast here. Uh, I, I want to go back. So you thought someone pulled you out? Yeah, I thought somebody pulled me out of the vehicle. And there was nobody there to pull you out. The officers didn't. Obviously, they didn't pull you out because they wouldn't have left no. you. And, and some people still argue it today. Like, my dad believes that they did. My wife even says, like... So, you know, like somebody did, but I don't know. I don't have any definitive proof, but I know this, that when the cops came, the investigators came, like they said that if a lot of people have been chased into this canal, like it's, uh, it's a high crime area. So it's yeah. known for, you know, there's a lot of murders there. There's a lot of bodies that have been dumped in this canal, allegedly um, weapons, you know, vehicles, stolen vehicles. So like this is the area wasn't, you know, it was a high crime area. So, um, yeah, they said that when they recovered the truck and they were like, if we chased 100 people into that canal, 99 of them wouldn't have made it out. Like that they were shocked that I, that I even made it out of that canal. Like, wow. But I, I still don't know for sure. And I don't know if there was even dash cam at that time. I don't even know how all that worked, but it wasn't even something that we pursued. But well, no, I mean, I, I'm sure it wasn't the police because yeah. they would have left you there. I mean, you know, I guess it could have been someone. I mean, I'm thinking it was the hand of God pulling you out of there. Man. Yeah. And th- and that's <laughs> that's what I that's what I chop it up to. Um, the only reason I would say the police is because sometimes, you know, police put you in a in a dangerous chase and the, the liability of that happening. But still, and then if maybe they saw me, if they wouldn't pull me out. You know, yeah. either if, they, yeah. if I don't went in the canal, then they would have left me there and just left and been like, OK, we, this never happened or we don't know what happened to them. You know, if they felt like that I died and there was some liability. Yeah. But to me, I just feel like it was a God thing. You know, yeah. like that was kind of like my coming to God moment because I didn't really believe in God at that time. So, like, yeah. that was like my first experience with that for sure. Wow. So I didn't derail you. So you you're you're uh, in prison, and you said that one really wasn't too bad. That and- one wasn't crazy. My second time in prison was was the insanity. You know, um, I come home, I'm doing well for a while. I'm actually working in a drug treatment center. Um, I end up relapsing, and the second time, and this is where I talk about the injustices of the system, is because I got I relapsed, and and I was completely wrong, and I'm on drugs. And um, I was married to someone at the time and and they were pregnant. And so they didn't want me to be there and justifiably so. So I left the house, but my dad was giving me permission to be at their house. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my dad and my stepmom, who I always called my mom, but my dad was giving me permission to be there. He was my enabler. And he also knew that I was actively using at the time. So he was like, 
listen, if you're going to take anything for your addiction, just take something out of my office. Like, take it from me. Don't go out there stealing from anybody, robbing from anybody. Like, just don't do that. You know, like, I don't want to see you going back to prison. So I, I'm staying there. But he's like, the only the only rule was that I had to leave before my mom got there. Because if she saw me there, it would be a huge fight. Like, they always fought about how he enabled me and, right. you know, with the addiction. And I, and I, and I get that too, you know? But, um, so anyways, I'm leaving one day. And at this point I had pawned a couple things, like for a couple hundred dollars worth of stuff. And I'm leaving one day and she's coming home and she sees me while she freaks out. And, um, but I'm, I'm using drugs and like, they're worried I'm, I'm going to kill myself. Like that's what this is ultimately going to lead to. So she calls the cops to get me help. Like they want me to get into treatment. Well, that's not the way it always works. You know, when you call the cops and you tell them this is what's happening, I ended up getting charged with a burglary at their house. Um, I got charged with burglary and a grand theft. And um, so I get arrested for that. I go to the county jail. My dad's like, I'm not bonding you out until you get it together. And um, so... He's like, but don't worry, we're not going to press charges like, you know, we, we want this to go away. It's going to go away. That's what they kept saying. You know, this is going to go away. You know, now they're the victims in my case. So, like, I can't really talk about it with them, even though I'm calling home every yeah. day from jail. Yeah, like, I'm, technically I can't because that's tampering with the witness. So, like, I can't tell them one way or the other what to do. But um, the cops or the state ends up telling. <clears throat> sorry, telling my parents that. You know, in exchange for depositions, we will get him treatment. So they go to depositions. The state asked my dad, and it was kind of a, a, a tricky question. The state, she says, um, so what you're telling me is that your son has permission to, that it's okay, is what she said. So what you're telling me is that it's okay for your son to go to your house whenever he wants to, take your car, and go sell it for drugs. And my, and my dad's like, no, that's not okay. I don't ever want my son doing that. And she was like, see, but no, my dad's like, no, it's not okay morally, but from a criminal perspective, yes, I am not pressing charges. Do I want my son doing that? Absolutely not. You know, but I do not want to press charges. And I didn't take his car. You know, I ended up taking like, it was less than $500 worth of stuff from their house. Yeah. And she was, she that, was giving an example, you know, stretching yeah. it and blowing it up, you know, taking it to yeah. the extreme. Taking it to the extreme. And yeah. I'm not saying that there shouldn't have been some accountability on my side, but what they did was just the tactics of, of the law. And it's the stuff that I fight against now with uh, my advocacy against, you know, with, for prison reform and against like the injustices of the system. Because once they gave depositions and shared that with them, the state said, oh, we're not going to offer him treatment. We're going to offer him 15 years in prison. And they were going to use wow. my past against me. So. Um, with the whole high speed chase thing. And um, so they said 15 years in prison. I'm like, no way. They ended up, my parents ended up bonding me out now because they're like, oh, this escalated to a lot more than what we wanted it to be. So they go to drop charges. They went and signed all the paperwork. We don't want to press charges. We just want this to go away. The state said, it doesn't matter what you want. You're not the victim. The state of Florida is the victim. He didn't commit a crime against you. He committed a crime against the state of Florida. It's the state of Florida versus me. You know, that's how it's written in, in the paperwork, in the docket. And, you know, it's the state of Florida versus Daniel Collins. And um, you are now our star witnesses is what they told my parents. So um, the state would not drop charges. 
I got an attorney that finally got them down to seven, but I had a choice to make. And my parents didn't want this. They just wanted me to get help. And um, I had a choice to make. It was, okay, I can take this to trial and make my parents go on the stand and testify against me, you know, because that's what the state was going to do is subpoena them. Um, You know, that was an option. You know, part of me was like, okay, like I am wrong here. You know, did I think I was seven years wrong? Absolutely not. You know, I I was an addict who needed help. And um, so that was an option. The other the other thing is, is that in the United States, you have a constitutional right to a speedy trial. But if you exercise that right and you lose, you will receive the maximum penalty. So that seven years that the state was offering, if I took it to trial and for some reason a jury decided that, you know, like I was guilty of a burglary, which I didn't burglarize. Like I had permission to be there for my dad. I had a key to the house. I had all my mail, everything going there, even on my court dockets from this case. (laughs) We're going to this house that I was being charged with a burglary at. Permission was never revoked from my dad. My dad's name's on the title of the house. He said I could be there. Was he an enabler? Yes. But did I technically burglarize it? No, because he was allowing me to be there. Theft at the worst, you know, like, yes. okay, yeah. I still, that you would know, have been like, a proper charge. Uh, yeah. Is a proper charge. So. And even I, then he was allowing me to do it. So like you technically can't even charge me with theft because my dad's saying I can do it. Like, yeah. and I, it's his item. So you can't, the state can't, whether I'm using it for drugs or not, they can't make that decision for my dad. If that's what he wants me to use, you know, like if he's saying I can have it and I, that's what I use it for, then so be it. Not saying that it's morally right, but from a criminal perspective, I mean, the state and, and maybe they thought they were protecting my parents from themselves. I don't know. But um, it was never violent. Like with my parents, it was never it was just me using drugs like and, you know, it's sad. But so I ended up going to prison. I took the seven years. You know, I didn't want to take it to trial. I didn't want to put my parents through anymore. I felt like I already put them through enough shame. And I was just like, you know what? I'm not I'm not taking it to trial and putting them on the stand. But let me you know. let me let me let me do this because you know you have so much to share, yeah. um, and and you know we're limited on time. But everybody that's listening to this show today, I want you to know also that I have just released a new podcast called The Dean's List, and and that podcast is about what I like to say ordinary people with extraordinary stories, and I certainly think you qualify. For an extraordinary story, because <laughs> there's still a lot more for this. But I'd like for you, if if it's okay with you, I want to have you come back on the dean's list and I, and, and tell more of this story um, because you're doing some pretty good things. But I want to get to um, I'm fast forward this one a little bit now because I want to get to some of the my, my my listeners on this podcast are used to used to hearing the crazy stories from police what they have to deal with. And I mm-hmm. want you to share some of the crazy stories from prison <laughs> that you had to deal with. And I also want to make sure people know what you're doing now, because you're doing something that's pretty cool now, um, you know, to kind of help some folks out. And I want to talk about that a little bit. But if, if it's OK with you, I'm going to have you come back on the Dean's List podcast so you can tell more about the reform. And because I want to <laughs> talk some about the, um, you know, what you feel like needs to be reformed in the criminal justice systems. And we'll try we'll touch on that a little bit now, too, because that's probably more mm-hmm. appropriate for this one. But if that's OK, if you'll agree to come back, I'll have you come back and and and, and tell us some more of this story Absolutely. as well as what you're doing now. OK, so let's let's go ahead and fast forward then from your to your seven year stint that you're doing. Yes. And that's a little bit different from the first few years you did in prison. How so? Um, it was just insane because it was more. It was more, uh, I guess, the prison culture vibe, like 
gangland, um, corrupt police, like you name it. I saw it that second bid. And, um, I'll say this, I got shipped to a, a camp here in Florida. It's called Columbia CI. And, um, you know, when I first get there, the first thing I'm asking is like, what's this camp like? And they tell me that the camp is on lockdown and for MIP. So I ask, what's an MR- MIP? And they, they tell me it's a murder in prison. So um, come to find out that there was two guys that were locked in a cell together. And the one guy was sexually <clears throat> assaulting the other guy or trying to. And um, so <clears throat> the guy who's being sexually assaulted packs his stuff up every day, puts it on the door. And uh, <clears throat> sits outside the cell and says, um, Sarge, I can't stay in here anymore. You know, like anytime Sarge will come around for count, you need to take me out of the cell. I can't stay in here anymore. And, uh, you know, Sarge would ask him why. And of course, he wouldn't tell because he didn't want to be known to be a snitch. You know, like, right, it's right. a bad reputation. They both had, you know, life sentences. So and of course, I, I have a little bit of time left and I'm in here with these people with life sentence. And so it can be like a little um hard to navigate those waters sometimes because it's just a whole different vibe you know you're getting ready to go home as opposed to some people who are never going home but um so anyways the guy was like sarge i need you to take me out of here sarge basically was like i can't hear you that's what he kept telling me if you're not going to tell me why then and, and the way prison works is that they don't move you just because you want to be moved you're going to be housed where they tell you to be housed and you're going to whether you like it or not Right. And uh, you got to have a, a, a valid reason. You basically got to tell in order to to uh, be moved. So Sarge kept telling him, I can't hear you every day. He's doing the same thing, putting his stuff on the door, going back into the room and having to deal with the same nonsense with his bunkie. Well, finally, one night he waits for his bunkie to get high, which was his normal routine. And um, when his bunkie gets high, he ends up stabbing him to death. He. Um, cuts his eyeballs out, cuts his ears off. He puts his ears inside a coffee or puts his eyeballs inside a coffee cup, puts his ear around a necklace and um, goes to chow the next morning for breakfast. And when he sees Sarge, he pulls the guy's ear up to his mouth and says, Hey Sarge, can you hear me now? Oh my uh, goodness. (laughs) So, you know, like that's something like, that you see a lot in prison, not that for that instance, but this was a crazy thing to happen in prisons, but it's the lack of um, being able to communicate with guards to, you know, to get the help that you need. Like I, the second time I was in prison, I seen guards do so much stuff from bringing drugs into the facility from, I seen a guard that got jumped into a gang to be a Latin King. Um, you know, I've seen correctional officers bring in phones, um, you name it, I've seen it. You know, like there, there's some guards will um, allow, you know, take payment for inmates to to do their thing, you know, to have sex, conjugal visits, you know, because we don't have conjugal visits. You know, you can go do that. So prison is the area, you know, it's it's an underworld where, you know, it's got its own set of rules and um, and you've got a lot of corrupt cops. So like um or correction officers like we don't even call them we call like the correction officers of prison like you know mall cops you know like the ones <laughs> that the ones that weren't able to become street street officers you know like and uh 
and we kind of laugh at them, you know, that we call them robo cops. But um, so what did they get? I mean, were they getting paid? Like, why, why would a cop bring drugs and those types of things in the prison phones? Are they getting paid to do that? I'm because they probably get. Yeah. And you got to figure a cop with well, those correction officers probably make what, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. You know, like it's it's nothing. So there's yeah. the incentive is obviously, you know, to make money. I mean, some cops just want to be cool and it, it, you be surprised at the number of police officers that you see that just want to fit in, you know, they just yeah. want to fit in with, with the wrong crowd, you know, like, um, but it's survival of the fittest in there. Like you've got people that are never going home and you know, the, the conditions of living in there are not great. And if you don't have access to people on the streets and you don't have access to funds, like you're going to live however you can live. And if that means, you know, selling drugs, selling phones, selling cigarettes, you know, whatever you can do to survive. And, you know, that's just the nature of the beast. And, and, um, and you see a lot of it and depending on where you're at in prison, certain gangs will run to camp. So, um, and in order to, to run a camp, they got to have some inside help with officers, you know, and um, so, so everything, you know, the operation runs smoothly. Everything in prison centers around money. So the flow of money. And so how much how, how, how does currency what's the value of currency? So like you, you had shared with me that even in prison, obviously, you were still able to to you were still in your addiction. You were still able to get drugs. You're still oh, able yeah. to what? Absolutely. More expensive in prison. Or less expensive. I mean, <laughs> it depends. You know, it depends on how it's. It's all about supply and demand. It's capitalism at its finest. So wow. if, you're, if you're at a work camp where stuff is easily accessible, more people went out the gate. More people bring stuff in. Um, more officers, like you know, because a lot of stuff coming through through the guards. A lot of things coming through visitation. A lot of things coming through work squad. I mean, this is stuff that they know. Like, and this yeah. has been going on for forever. But um, you could be at at one camp and a phone could be a hundred bucks and you could be at the next camp and a phone could be $1,500. And you're talking about a little $30 throwaway phone or a $20 phone. So, um, currencies usually, and now you've got the advent of cash app, Venmo, anything you just, any, there's so many ways to send money, but I mean, the other currencies obviously canteen, but most people don't want canteen, you know, they'd rather have money to send home to their family. You've got people that are literally taking care of from their families from the inside, you know, um, people that are saving money to get an attorney in hopes of getting out, you know, so they're doing Man. whatever they can to get the money to have the resources for their freedom. So by any means necessary, you know, like, and sometimes it's, can you blame them? You know, if you've been railroaded by a system that is, is taking your entire life away, then hey, and you have access to a public defender only, that's not going to do anything and doesn't have the manpower, the funds or the resources to do something you're going to do whatever you can to get that money to pay for that attorney to, you know, for your freedom. So, um, like I said, the thing about prison is everything's hidden from society. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about prison, you know, with the rape culture. And I was and just going to ask you, what, what would you, what would you consider the biggest misconception or some of the biggest misconceptions about prison? Um, the whole soap on a, a, a rope thing, like that's just foolishness. You know what I mean? Um, and, and the thing about prison is that, like, I'm not saying rape doesn't happen. You know, obviously that instance with that guy trying to do that, you know, lost his life behind it, you know, the insanity. But it's few and far between. And the reality is if people want to engage in that type of behavior, I mean, some people, there's a lot of people that are willing. But some yeah. people, if you're like a true rapist, you only get off on 
taking it from somebody, you know, like, right, right. and I think that those, those people, they're not as prevalent as most people would think, you know, prisons are filled with nonviolent drug offenders, you know, that's the majority of people in prison, and, mm-hmm. you know, and it's only perpetuated in prison because there's no access to resources. <clears throat> there's no real security that's keeping it out. So, um, and it's actually encouraged a lot because then it, it keeps the control of the prison because if you keep inmates distracted, right. High or doing this right. and doing that, they're not worried about taking you over. You know what I mean? Cause it's a numbers game anyways in prison. You only have a certain amount of correction officers to the number of inmates. If the inmates really united, just like out here, the power of the people, if the people out here really united, who could stop us? You know? Yeah. And to me, that's the, that's the way I kind of perceive like the system in general, it's like divide and conquer. And uh, it's no different in there as it is out here. You know, it's its own world. If there's a will, there's a way. Wow. So before we end the show, I want I want I want to get to what you're doing now because you've ter- totally turned your life around. But before I do that, you know, my, my primary sponsor here is Eric Buchanan and Associates. You hear me talking about him all the time. For those of you guys that that have been paying for disability insurance, you know, you have a job and you're making sure that if something happens to you, that you will have disability insurance to take care of your family. But then something happens and they deny that claim. And if that's the case, make sure you call Eric Buchanan at Buchanan uh, disability.com. Those guys will take care of you. And, you know, these folks that are taking care of my, me on the podcast, they will take care of you if you need it. But back to my man, Danny. Um, what's the craziest thing aside from the dude that just killed the folks that were sexually assaulted? And what's the craziest, craziest thing you, you feel like you've seen in prison? I mean, I don't know. I've seen everything. I've seen stab. It's what what you would consider crazy is it became normal to me. So every day, yeah, it was an everyday survival. So I mean, it's desensitized. I mean, obviously, I probably have PTSD from it. You know, that's why I go to therapy and get medication. But I mean, I've seen everything. I've participated in some things, but um, it's survival. So I mean, obviously, the craziest thing you're going to see is somebody get stabbed and lose their life. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, more so than anything else like but yeah um that's i would say that That, that, and and, and the fact that you know and i heard you say too like the comply thing doesn't always work in prison like inmates comply and they still get beat in handcuffs you know you see that a lot so like um and that's i think that's what kind of that's kind of what my mission is, is to, to rebuild that trust because there is a lack of trust, even like with the situation with my parents calling the cops, you know, the cops didn't make that situation better. And, um, you know, they, oh, yeah, that's a public service announcement I meant to make, by the way, you do not call the cops if you want your, your loved one to get help with, uh, addiction. addiction. It ain't going to happen. That's not no. the cop's job. They're cop, the cops. The officer's job is to arrest someone for suspected of breaking the law. That's it. Yeah. But you, they come, they arrest you, they take you to jail, and then, then, then the court system, and they, they're, they're supposed to do their part. So please don't, do not try to call the police because you want someone to get help for, for, uh, for addiction. Now, unless you're saying if this person gets arrested, that's going to be help. But don't expect that officer's going to come and sit down and try to, try to get help for that person. But it can the, happen. It should be that not, way, though, and that's that's my my issue is that the the training needs to shift to where that that can happen, you know, and that's where there can be a buffer between law enforcement and society is that we shift the the perspective of law enforcement's role in in society because the reality is law enforcement doesn't do much to prevent or solve crime. Most of the murders and sex cases go unsolved, and 
you know, the people that end up getting put in prison the most are, are low level drug offenders, you know, and, you know, speeding tickets and driving without a license and just, you know, like, I feel like the role with law enforcement, I'm not one of these defund the police type of guys, you know, but I do believe that we can shift the perspective of the law enforcement. We can better allocate the resources to what the law enforcement's we got to have some kind of law and order. You know what I mean? Like there's got. Yeah, to be- but I, I, we, you, we, we can discuss that on the other podcast because okay. we're talking about there. Some things need to happen and change. Yes. But listen to what you're saying. You're, you're saying law enforcers need to know they're they're there to enforce laws. That is their job. That is their primary function. However, there are there are things that that should be done and can be done. There there are places that your parents could have called to get you help. Whether or not you would have accepted it is is too totally, you know, that's that's a whole nother story. But it's not the police officer's job to come and get uh, someone that's addicted to drugs help. Now, again, there's not to say there shouldn't be empathy or things like that, but that's not that's not their job. Um, they can't be trained enough to to understand all of the mental health issues. But there should be something in place for if there's a mental health crisis for you to understand that and hopefully have time to get someone there to help that because you can't be trained on every single thing. And like, Oh, okay. I, I can tell this person is going through a mental health crisis. Let me sit here for three hours and, and talk to this person when you've got, you know, 75 other calls that are waiting. And some of those calls are, you know, accidents with injuries or people getting robbed and all those types of things are happening. So I do think that there's a place for a, a, a police, but I think that we have to, I mean, there, there's, there's, there can be some more empathy for police, um, but I think the, the notion that they are going to be able to there, the, that's who you call when you have someone that is in addiction to help you with that addiction. That's just probably not going to be the best use of their resources. I wish that were the case, but that's just not going to happen. So I know um, one of the things that that you kind of had an issue with when I what I said, and I want to make sure, Danny, that you you know, that, that you're heard loud and clear, um, you know, because we may not agree on everything, but we can certainly have a a. A reasonable conversation. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that you really kind of have issue with is that, I, you know, I feel like that if you want someone to get help for drug addiction, the police are not the place. That's not the right place to call. But, you you know, you feel like maybe it should be. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that the officers can be a buffer between the, the community, you know, um, and that they can help minimize some of those situations to deescalate them and and charge for what people are actually doing and not trump up charges. Most, most of the time I see officers just charge a whole bunch of charges and whatever sticks, you know, rather than just, you know, being fair. And, um, and like I said too, like the complete, just complied thing doesn't always work out. You know, um, we've seen a lot of different situations with that, but one thing that really comes to my mind is that my parents called the cops, you know, with the hopes of getting me help and that didn't work out. And they ultimately became victims in this situation too. And um, and I think about with the George Floyd situation and what happened when, you know, that kid called the cops and then ended up watching somebody lose their life. You know, like what's the likelihood of this guy calling the cops again? You know, what's the likelihood of my parents calling the cops again because they don't trust the cops? So, like, that's where I am open for honest discussion. Like, we need to have that dialogue. But I just feel like that there's more that we can do for empathy, you know, to bridge that gap between even people that do commit crimes and, um, you know, make bad decisions that, you know, of course there needs to be some personal accountability, but there, I, there's more that can be done on the other side as well, you know, to, to make this 
go. You know, just the fact that I'm on this show with an ex cop and yeah. you know, that's a lot for me. So yeah. um, you know, like I'm willing to have the the open dialogue and, and conversation because I think it's a topic that our country desperately needs right now. And um and we should be open to respecting each other's ideas and and um without getting emotionally charged. Um but allow space for both both sides to talk and both sides to to you know um allow space for growth you know yeah. and understanding so yeah yeah I and, I, and I, I agree with that 100 percent um you know and and in, in, in this podcast we may not get to a place where we a hundred percent agree with agree with everything but Absolutely. most of the things yeah most of the things i am a hundred percent in agreement with you um i feel like you know george floyd and you name it several other instances unheard of that 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 just should not have happened and yeah. when i say comply <laughs> what i mean by that is the chances Tyree of bad Nichols, things you know recently yeah yeah Sorry. there's 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 many but the, the, when you comply the chances of things happening are, are certainly less we can agree on that but i'll i'll say on the record right now for everyone to hear anytime someone is in handcuffs anytime someone complies if a police officer goes and does assaults them because that's what it is at that point you're assaulting yeah. someone i am not on board with that okay i am not on board with that that shouldn't happen i don't care if you're in prison and you know your quote your rights have been lost to a certain extent you st- that should not happen in prison that should mm-hmm. not happen on the street so so i don't want anybody to construe that um as me thinking that if you comply that means nothing bad can happen to you um i just think the chances of bad things happening are lower you know yeah so, um, but I, again, I want you to come back and we'll talk more about some reforms and things like that, because, you know, you have, I'm, we're running out of time here, but you have all kinds of statistics and, and reasoning behind why you feel like, um, there's so many more people in prison now than they were, you know, when crime rates were actually higher years ago. And there's actually more people in, in, in prison now. And a lot of that's because of the drug, uh, the, the war on drugs, so to speak. And we all know, yeah, we all know looking back on that, that that was really a war on, I'll just say it, a war on brown people and a war on poor people. Yes, so. <laughs> absolutely. But let's talk about what you're doing now, because you're doing some amazing work and you're looking to do even more amazing work with the company that you're with now. So tell us all about that. So the company I'm with now is called Containing Luxury, and we're actually taking shipping containers and turning them into homes. So our mission is to create affordable housing. Um, one thing people like me coming out of prison that now has this label as a convicted felon um, struggles with is housing. And once I've realized that and experienced that for myself, and then I just realized some of the disparities with some of these marginalized communities and what they've experienced with trying to get housing and, um, you know, impoverished communities that are trying to get housing. Um, and I just thought that the company that I'm working for was a great fit. You know, like our owner has a heart for people, our owner, Blake, and he really, um, He's creating another nonprofit arm as well. It's called Lift Housing. And the whole idea is going to be able to lift people up and to, you know, being able to own, not only own a house, but own the land that it's on. And, um, you know, it's a start and it's a pathway to, you know, financial freedom. It's a pathway to, you know, just having some kind of ownership. So I'm very happy, like uh, Container Luxury, we can find us on YouTube, you know, www.containerluxury.com. We're on all social media platforms. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what we're doing. We're creating affordable housing, making it with shipping containers. They're, you know, hurricane rated for here in Florida. Um, 
I don't know what you guys get up there in Tennessee, but <laughs> we, we get uh, the remnants. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you know, fully insulated, every, you know, they're, they're homes. It's a very nice product um, at a very affordable price. You know, everything's under a hundred thousand dollars. And with this day and age, real estate market and the way the housing crisis is like, you can't find that and inflation's to the roof. We all know that. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited about that. It's just nice to know that I've been able to turn my life around and, and be afforded this opportunity to um, do something I'm passionate about. Obviously, I'm passionate about prison reform. I'm passionate about, you know, addiction and recovery and, um, you know, even, you know, changing the systems and stuff and interactions with police. Like, I'm all about humanizing the badge. Like, I yeah. really am. Like, I don't believe that, you know, every cop is is a bad person, just like I don't want cops to feel like every person who's been incarcerated is a bad person. That's um, right. It's a good point. You know, so, you know, we need to humanize it all the way across the board for humanity. Um, I do believe, you know, that what we're doing with containing luxury is um, helps to bridge that gap. And, you know, like I'm definitely excited about the work that we're doing and just to be able to have a, a career that I love that's, that's helping people and, you know, and be able to give back. You know, I've said many times, and it really boils down to this. If we get to a point where we just try to understand each other instead of trying to be understood, mm-hmm. then it'll all be better. We'll all be better off for it. Now, I want to make sure I hear it right. Also, I'm going to have you send me the uh, the links to mm-hmm. to is, is it containing luxury? Containing luxury, yes. Okay, I just wanted to make sure you said containing luxury, yep. and not container. Yes, yeah, yeah. send me that, and I'll put it in the show notes. But um, I think that's the coolest thing since sliced bread because you have – these containers are everywhere. You know, there's, there's probably an abundance of containers. Yes. I've seen people do some really cool high end things with them. Um, but to take those and make it where it is more affordable and, you know, there's abundance of them. I know you still have to find property and things like that, but I think that's yeah. a great use of resources. And that's the biggest problem that we've seen with these containers is that people don't own the land. So we've actually purchased land. We're going to build our first container home development down here in Florida, Okeechobee, Florida. We're going to build a 200 home development that you will own the land. You will own the container. Um, and I'm really excited about that. So, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, you'll actually have to come back when that gets going and and and, and give us updates on that. That is super cool. 200 yes. units? 200 units, gated community. Um, and, you know, it's going to have retention ponds. It's going to have dog park. It's going, you know, it's, it's going to be something that's amazing. It's an amazing product. If you see, check us out on YouTube, Containing Luxury on YouTube, check out the product and... I'm telling you, you're going to fall in love with it. And, uh, you know, I've definitely lived in smaller places, <laughs> obviously being <laughs> in prison, but these are really comfortable. They're cozy. Uh, they're nicely made. We're able to standardize the process. We buy material in bulk, and that way we can keep the cost low, not only for us, but also for the end user. And uh, the, the whole point is affordable, you know? Yeah. And are they be, all one bedroom? Not all of them are. Um, we are going to do two 40-foot containers on the same lot. They're going to have a deck that goes across with staircases coming down, a catwalk that goes across. One of them can be two bedrooms with a bathroom. The other one can have your kitchen and living room. So um, we've definitely got creative with the way that we've built them and, and designed this community. But for the ones that we currently make, the 20-foot and the 40-foot model, the 20-foot's like a, a studio apartment. 
Um, and the 40 foot is like a one bedroom with a living space, or you can actually turn that other living space into a bedroom as well. Um, just depends on what your, you know, your personal needs are, but, um, we've seen a lot of great things with them, not only with affordable housing, but other people have purchased them for Airbnb rentals, short-term rentals to create, yeah. generate like uh, additional income. And that's been a huge success for some people as well. But yeah, yeah. it's, it's definitely, it's, it's, I'm very happy to be a productive member of society. <laughs> and we're happy to have you as a productive yeah. member of society. And that's what I, that's actually, I, I serve on a couple of boards that are nonprofit boards and they deal with homelessness. And that's one of the ideas that I wish that I could afford to do is I wanted to have a community with tiny homes or container homes, or you call it, but it's for people that are experiencing homelessness so they can get in, but then also have another one that's for profit where people can come in and rent, you know, short-term rentals yeah. and things like that. So, well, and that's what we're going to do with that lift housing is that's going to be in the owner of our company, Blake, he's got it started up. He's, you know, um, with the nonprofit. And then what he's going to do is for the homeless community, for vets, you know, we have entirely way too many vets who are homeless. And um, so people that are struggling with addiction, whatever, you know, it may be that the lift housing, we're actually going to use the funds for that nonprofit and put people, you know, in a home that can allow them to transition, you know, for X amount of time in order to, you know, get to that next phase in life to where they can actually support themselves, you know. So um, I'm excited about that. That's to come to, but that will be you know, a spinoff of containing luxury with what we're doing with that. So, yeah. All right. Well, my guest today is Danny Collins. Danny, make sure you send me all those links and I'll put those in the show notes so folks can find you guys if they want to learn more about containing luxury because it is cool. I've seen a couple of your TikTok videos with those things and they are super sharp. And to all my listeners, thank you so much for listening. And as I always ask you, make sure you share and, um, you know, let your friends know. And, you know, like I said, I know this show is a little bit different, but I think it's important for us to hear as kind of as what Danny just said, let's hear all sides of the story. You know, I usually have first responders on, but there's another side the first responders are interacting with other folks out there and this is a great way i think a great way for us to hear and learn about the other side and um you know not just everything being one-sided so danny i appreciate you coming and joining me because i know it's probably a little different than what you've done in the past and and like i said i I haven't always been for cops but you know my wife's been (laughs) helping me with that like and as needed to be like you know i've accepted responsibility for my actions and um you know, uh, I want to humanize the badge and bridge that gap. And but I also want some accountability on all sides and I want some love on all sides, you know, and some empathy. So I'm glad we were able to have this conversation, even though we don't agree on everything. You know, it's OK to agree, you know, to disagree and allow space for, you know, growth or, you know, understanding conversation. So, um, you know, I'm grateful for that. And I appreciate you having me. Well, hey, that's a great way to end this show because I think we can all agree that accountability on all sides is needed. Empathy, we can all use some more empathy so you won't get any arguments from me on that, sir. So thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, have a blessed day. Thanks for listening to 9 what We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have comments or suggestions, please email us at 911.podcast at gmail.com. And thanks to Carlos Bailbonding and Eric Buchanan and Associates for making this episode possible. 